Let's get started then. We all know people uh, who used to be in the ministry. And uh, most of us know people who shouldn't be in the ministry. And we know several, perhaps, um, that as ministers we do not want to be like or we do not want our pastor to be like. But the sad news for ministers, regardless of your age or your experience or your education, it's almost inevitable that you will become the kind of minister you don't want to be. The forces are almost unstoppable. And so it's important to address the subject I'm addressing tonight of the almost inevitable ruin of every minister and how to avoid it. I have a number of statistics in, in front of me here. Uh, several years ago, a Southern Baptist denominational executive was uh, on our campus, and he said that for every 20 men who enter the ministry, one will still be in the ministry today, he's 65. And as I think back to the guys I went to seminary with, now that I'm over 65, um, I have one friend who reached that age, besides myself, still in the ministry. And I don't know if it's true for many of you, but that's the way it's certainly been a lot of my, my experience. Despite all the commitment that they began with, all the costs of their education and all the investment of time, despite the years of service, despite the cost of having to retool, often in an area where a seminary education is virtually uh, useless. And despite all of these, Nearly everyone who enters the ministry leaves the ministry. Some will uh, opt out for health reasons. Some will wash out in their private lives. Some will uh, bow out realizing they missed their call from God. Some will bail out because the stress is just so great. Some will be forced out by their churches. Uh, in Southern Baptist life, uh, 50% of ministers at some point are forced out, forced termination. So if you're a Southern Baptist and it's not happened to you, well, it's happened twice to someone else. Uh, <clears throat> statistically, 50% sometime experience that. <clears throat> Some will uh, walk out from the sheer frustration and sense of failure. And if you haven't given thought, serious thought, to leaving the ministry, that only tells me you've not been in very long. H.B. Uh, London, uh, who is uh, the brother-in-law and successor to James Dobson at Focus on the Family, said that uh, just five years after seminary graduation, 50% are no longer in the ministry. Just five years out, 50% no longer in the ministry. Now, of course, no one intended for that to happen. When they entered the ministry, when they began seminary, they did not intend to be a casualty, but it seems that the ruin of almost every minister, one way or another, 
is almost inevitable. And despite that, of those who remain in the ministry, there's a significant percentage of those who shouldn't. They shouldn't be in the ministry. They've been ruined, but they've been ruined in other ways and stay in the ministry. They may be, get, they may be ruined by money, either by the desire for it or the lack of it. They make too many, far too many choices based upon money, or they may smolder for uh, being underpaid by their church, so it's not necessarily greed, but a ruin from the attitude that develops from being underpaid. Of course, they may get ruined by sex. I have a statistic from uh, another Southern Baptist publication. 25 to 35 percent of ministers in my denomination admit to being involved in, in, in inappropriate sexual behavior. Now, that may be Pornography it doesn't mean physical, but nevertheless, physical, you know, actual misbehavior with uh, another woman. But at some level, there is up to a third, perhaps even more today, uh, in ways that are unknown to others, but they're preoccupied with it, and it so absorbs their attention uh, that their true spiritual impact is ruined. So money, sex, power is another. They may get authoritarian, though they never intended to start out that way. And the real subtle danger here is someone can start out with the right attitude and a humble, servant-hearted approach. And through faithfulness, staying in one place for so long, power just accrues to them, especially if it's a transitional area. I pastored in the suburb of Chicago for 15 years, and we had a, you know, kind of a bedroom community. There's 33% annual turnover in, in our town. So every three years, it's a whole new town. I mean, it's like pastoring a parade, you know, in, in one sense. And it wasn't very long. I was the only one almost in the church who knew where things were. I was almost the only one in the church who knew how things were done. And so by sheer faithfulness and longevity, which is a positive thing, this temptation to authoritarianism can develop because everybody has to come to you to know where things are and how do we do these things, you know, here at our church. And that can lead to, you know, more authoritarian spirit. Or maybe they discover that they enjoy denominational work or administration and after a while, they begin serving their own political appetites more than Jesus. And to pull strings becomes more satisfying than to preach sermons. And to be in the know. To be able to put people in places and keep others out of influential positions. And to be the first to get the inside information becomes the ministry to these guys. Or they may, be get, they may be ruined by pride, which may be the sin that both God and people hate the most. Pride. The greater the influence God gives them, the greater they become in their own sight, like Saul, and the more they believe they deserve the influence. And when they were first called in the ministry, and early on, their attitude was, 
You know, Lord, why me? Why me? But they soon reach a place where it becomes, why not me? Why not me? Why did he get that church and not me? Why not me? But regardless of their knowledge or their abilities and even their apparent success, they aren't loved, they aren't admired, they may get the admiration of the the ignorant or the undiscerning or those who want to piggyback on the power of such men, but they will not get it from godly men and women. So money, sex, power, pride, cynicism ruins a lot of men who stay in the ministry. I mean, just think about it. For starters, if you spend a lot of time around people who are ruined by money, sex, power, and pride, (laughs) and you realize they're the spiritual leaders around here, well, it's easy to get cynical, isn't it? You deal week in and week out with people who claim to be Christians, but often treat you worse than the world does. Right? And so our expectations are higher. These people in my church claim to be Christians. They ought to be nicer people. I know people in the world who treat me better than some of the people around here do. And these are supposedly godly people. And you realize how hypocritical many are and many in the ministry in general are. And so many who claim to be Christians don't act like it. And when you've ministered to such people for such a long time and you don't see change, or you prepare week after week after week and you preach your heart out and nothing seems to happen really, it's so tempting to become cynical that something's wrong, something doesn't work <clears throat> like I was promised it would work. And you begin to hear, you, you know what's happened to guys when they begin to talk about their uh, most important interests, and it's not the things of God. And no one's testimony thrills such a person anymore. No book motivates them anymore. No sermon moves them anymore. The Word of God itself doesn't feed your soul anymore. It all seems to be there's an edge in your soul that says, this isn't. The way it's supposed to be. But this is the way it is. So something's wrong. Not so much in a grieving sort of sense as is an angry sense. Like you've been deceived somehow by the testimonies and the books and the sermons. And it all seems a little shady now. And you take another step toward deconstruction. And it ruins your own ministry. How is someone like that going to minister effectively in spiritual and godly ways to other people? It's not going to happen. Cynicism has poisoned your soul and it it affects everything. Or they may get ruined by success. So they stay in the ministry, but they're, they're ruined in the ministry by money, sex, power, pride, cynicism, or even success. They become CEOs and not shepherds. They become managers, not ministers. 
their model for everything becomes business and business books. And they're more interested in numbers and, and units and products and marketing and customers. They use this kind of language rather than a family with its emphasis on love and relationships and new births and maturity or even a farm with its emphasis on sheep and fruit and growing things. Now, in some cases, many cases, ruin results in men leaving the ministry. Yet, in many instances, they remain and they become something that Today, they say they never want to become. You see them politicking their way through denominational life. And you say to yourself as you see them, I don't want to become like that. You overhear their cynicism and their conversations and you say to yourself, I don't ever want to become like that. You discern their sense of self-importance. You say, Lord, don't ever let me become like that. And you meet them, you tell them where you serve and, you know, they're not interested in that but they're very interested in telling you about where they serve and how it's growing how well it's doing and they take a lot of pride in that and you begin to think Lord I don't ever want to become like that and they seem to be more interested in other things you bring up the things of God and they'd rather it seems talk about football or their hobbies or something other than the things of God seem to interest them more than anything else. And inwardly you say, Lord, don't ever let me become like that. You hear them preach, maybe. And their arrogant attitude or their worldliness or their lack of earnestness in what they're doing. Or their just sheer professionalism in the way that they do it. Or their hypocrisy makes you pray, Lord, don't ever let me become like that. But we beware, it's almost inevitable that you will become like that. That that's you in a few years. There's this almost inevitability of becoming the kind of minister that early on, and maybe even today, you can still say, I don't ever want to become like that. It's almost inevitable. The forces are too great. That's what younger ministers will say of you. When they're around you in a few years. There's an almost inevitable ruin of every minister. Or you will make progress. There's no middle ground. There's either an inevitable ruin that happens to nearly all. Or you make progress. Growth. And it's always been that way. This will, I think, really surprise you as I collect a number of verses around this theme, all from the Apostle Paul in the pastoral epistles. Just listen to these verses from 1 Timothy, first of all. And, and what I'm drawing from are verses that speak of the ruin of ministers in this short little book of six chapters. 
1 Timothy 1.6, there were ministers who had turned aside to fruitless discussions. Chapter 1, verse 19, some had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And we can all think of a few of those in the last two or three years, can't we? In chapter 4, verse 2, he warned ministers of being filled with the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In chapter 6, verse 4, he told Timothy to watch out for the minister who is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions on Twitter. Oh, wait, that's not in there. Um, And disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and suspicions. The next verse, 6, 5, Paul spoke of... The hold money had on these ministers, for he says they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In chapter 6, verses 20 and 21, he warned Timothy to avoid ministers characterized by worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus have gone away from the faith. They've deconstructed. Now, 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul names two ministers who turned away from him, from apostolic faith. Chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, he speaks of ministers whose talk will spread like gangrene. Then he names two such ministers who have gone astray from the truth. Chapter 3, verse 5, he warns of ministers who are holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power. They're orthodox And what they believe, but their beliefs aren't life-changing. It doesn't seem to affect their walk with God. Chapter 3, verse 8, these ministers are men who oppose the truth. They're in the ministry, but they oppose the truth. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul speaks of ministers who will teach in accordance to the desires of people who will not endure sound doctrine. The people will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, and notice it doesn't say that they will abandon the faith. They will want teaching, but teaching that tickles their ears. So they'll, they'll watch a Joel Osteen. You know, they, they don't want to give it up completely. They're still attracted to ministers who will tell them what they want to hear. Everything's always, you're in good shape, encouraging things, positive things. So they don't give up listening to sermons. They just give up listening to sound doctrine sermons. And Titus. Now, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He describes many ministers as rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, teaching things. So they're in ministry, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And then chapter 1, verse 16, Paul warned Titus of ministers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. These were all ministers. And most of them were still in the ministry. That's why Paul had to warn about them. But they had been ruined by All these things here. And this has been preserved for us in the Word of God because it's a warning every generation of ministers needs to hear. 
that there's an almost inevitable ruin for anyone who goes into the ministry. And of course, one of the reasons for that, Richard Baxter talks about this in his uh, classic book, The Reformed Pastor. Uh, Packer said that if Baxter, what he meant by the word in, the, in that setting was revived. If he were to rewrite it today, he might recall it, call it the revived pastor. But he deals with a passage that I'm about to get to in a moment here, 1 Timothy um, 4.16. And he gives eight reasons uh, why all this happens. And one of them is because uh, we're a bigger target for Satan now. Whose fall would have a greater impact? The pastor's or the guy who comes once a month and sits on the back row? The, the two men can do exactly the same thing. One is hardly noticed and the other ruins the whole church, the whole you know, ministry reputation in that area. So who's going to, if you're Satan, who's going to be the bigger target? In the military, I think they call them, you know, rich targets. It's going to be those whose fall will have the greatest impact. He is not stupid. Uh, I'm reminded of a movie, oh, it's probably been 15 years or more now, The Patriot, that um, Mel Gibson was in. You know, it's a loose historical movie based on the Swamp Fox in South Carolina, Francis Marion. And... uh, Cornwallis came in, you know, General Cornwallis came in that way and he had, had his army. And uh, th- this was militia that uh, Francis Marion was leading. And so they, these guys weren't trained. And so they would just hide behind trees and the bushes and, you know, all this kind of stuff and do just kind of what we'd call today guerrilla warfare. And so Cornwallis said, you know, time out, time out here. Uh, so he calls for a, a conference with Francis Marion and he says, uh, do you realize your men are shooting at my officers? And Francis Marion said, well, duh. He says, you know, this is not how gentlemen fight wars. You know, we're supposed to be able to wear red uniforms with gold braid and march in straight lines. And, you know, and the officers are the ones who are the privileged people who get to say, with a, you know, with a great sword, go get them, men. And you are shooting at my officers. And Francis Marion was sort of like, well, yeah, well, that's the point. Because if I can take down your officers, that has greater impact than just hitting one of the guys, one of the privates in the front rank. And Satan is not stupid. He's going to apply more pressure, more temptation on you and on me than the average person in the pew. Because it can do far more damage. And he knows which buttons to push. And it's the same buttons for all in ministry. Money, sex, power, pride, cynicism, or success. It's always one of those six, right? And he knows which ones especially to push and when to push them. Which is not going to be a significant part of what I'm going to say tonight, but deserves to be. That's why we ought to pray for one another, pray for your minister, pray for your pastor. Because he is subject to more temptations than ordinary men. Anyone, anyone who thinks he stands, you know, beware lest he fall. 
anyone thinks he's, anyone, no matter his education, his experience, faithfulness over decades. You know, I've known men my age to fall morally. If anyone thinks he stands, even now, let him take heed lest he fall. So, how do we make progress in the ministry instead of making shipwreck? Well, Paul wrote to Timothy and, and God to us in 1 Timothy 4, 15 and 16. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. It's evident to the whole church. You're making progress in all things related to, to ministry. Practice these things. Well, what are these things? Well, in one sense, it's the whole letter. It's the whole four chapters up till this point in First Timothy. But in the specific context here, it's what uh, Paul commends to every minister in verse four, chapter four, verse six, down to verse sixteen, culminating in verse sixteen. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or doctrine. Persist in this, for so by so doing, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. In order to make progress in the ministry, remember the alternative is, is inevitable ruin. You pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. So, finally having gotten to the text. Just one point for each of these. And the first one is this. Don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus. Don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus because it will. Pay close attention to yourself so that doesn't happen. It will unless you pay close attention to yourself. Now that, some I guess would read that, pay close attention to yourself. It's not rather self-centered or narcissistic. But what Paul means here is pay close attention to yourself as a man of God. Pay close attention to your relationship with Jesus. Make sure you stay close to Him and keep your eyes on Him and grow more like Him and that you don't let anything, including serving Him, the ministry, keep you from Him. Now, there's a part of me that says, well, how can that happen? If I'm in ministry, I'm giving my life for Jesus, to serve Jesus. How then could the ministry keep me from general, uh, from, in general, you know, from, from Jesus? I, I, I'm given to study his word so I can talk about him to his people. I... Do the work of building up his kingdom every day. How can the ministry of Jesus keep me from Jesus? Well, first of all, remember that this text, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching, was written, first of all, to a minister. Specifically to a minister. You're going to be susceptible to this. You're going to be so busy doing the work of the ministry, you better pay close attention to yourself so that you don't lose what you have. You don't let that erode your relationship to Jesus that began all of this. The ministry keeps you from Jesus when it keeps you from hearing from Jesus, 
Remember that the ministry is, according to Acts 6-4, right? The verse that came up just a few minutes ago is the ministry of the word. Right? That is the ministry, the ministry of the word. And that which was the ministry of the apostles there ought to be obviously the centerpiece of our ministry because Paul's going to say to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. That's the centerpiece. When you don't have time to feed your own soul from the word of God, you don't go to it just to get sermons for others. You're facing inevitable ruin. Just knowledge of this, which everyone would nod their head and say is not enough. We all need to be reminded of it and exhorted to it. Because many of those that we know who had to leave the ministry would have nodded the same time. Would have said the same thing. Yeah, I know that. So, do you look at your sermon prep time as your devotional time? I hope not. Now, there are men who say that's, that is their time in the word privately with the Lord. And, and I have to believe them. You know, they've been faithful for decades. I know it doesn't work for me. And I know there's a temptation, though, for it to do that for efficiency's sake. I could save a lot of time <laughs> if I just do my, call my sermon prep time my devotional time. But I know myself well enough to know when I'm looking at the text thinking how, I, how I'll be preaching it to others rather than to myself, that's not what I need for my time alone with God. There's a sermon mindset, at least for me, and then there's a I'm hearing from God mindset. And beware that there's, you're not operating under some self-deception that if I just spend a lot of time in the Word, regardless of the purpose, that's enough for my personal devotional life. I need the freedom away from thinking about how this relates to anybody else, but only how it relates to the Lord speaking to me. So hearing from Jesus, but ministry also keeps you from Jesus when it keeps you from talking to Jesus. Are you still a man of prayer? Again, we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. Several years ago, my late mother was on a uh, committee at her church to select an interim pastor. And in, in Southern Baptist life, at least, uh, and, and in the South, where more predominant, there's the state denominational, well, in general, we have the Southern Baptist Convention and all the state conventions. Then you have a, what we call a state convention, all the Southern Baptist churches generally in that state, like there's the uh, convention here in Ohio. And then there's the sub-level within the state is the association. And where I'm from, every county um, has its own association. So... And there's a denominational missionary, often he's called, or, or leader in that county whose job is to help plant churches and direct mission work and so forth in that county. So he's often pulpit supply work and interim work, you know, in the churches in the county. And so they were interviewing him, a man in his 50s, and my mother asked him the question about, you know, 
reading the Bible and praying. And he kind of smirked and said, well, I kind of outgrew that several years ago. And I said, I hope at that point you said this interview is over. He should be an example to the flock. Nobody ever outgrows that. If you've memorized the Bible, I don't care how many sermons you've preached, no one outgrows that. But there's a temptation to do so. And what's happening is this deception like Paul warned the Corinthians, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray by the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So, fellow ministers, most of all, but everyone here is is a leader in your church, I know. Don't be deceived by the necessity of devotion. uh, uh, I think there's a necessity in devotion to Christ that you've got to have a lot of resources. You complicate it. There's a simplicity of devotion. Don't lose that. Just you, your Bible, the Holy Spirit. Now, devotional books that find helpful and that are edifying, that's great. But sometimes, especially in ministry, uh, we can, and I see this a lot with seminary students who are learning biblical languages for the first time, and so they want to get their, their Greek or Hebrew out there, and it ends up becoming too much like seminary class and devotional. That's the sort of warning I'm talking about on a... Another level, perhaps, with you, but don't be deceived about the necessity of that. And the more complex we make it, I've got to have just the right place or just the right time or just enough time or the right books, then, you know, I can't do it. Beware of that. Um, I'm trying to, have to edit some of this on the fly here. Um, and like that denominational leader I spoke of, there's a temptation to think because of my experience and my education, I can sort of coast on what I already know, my previous experiences. I never open a text. I don't think I've preached on this many times. Why do I need to look at this again? Let me just, an illustration that comes off the top of my head. When I was in seminary, I first was taught the idea there's a chapter of Proverbs for every day of the month. Read chapter of Proverbs every day. Brilliant. I like that. So I began in seminary in the 70s doing that. And I haven't missed a month. Okay, so you add those months up, 12 months a year, 10 years is 120. You know, we've got four and a half decades or more since the 70s in there. I've read the whole book of Proverbs more than 500 times. No, don't be impressed. I, I come to chapter 7, right? Every month he says, I looked out through the window, looked out through my lattice, saw a young man walking down the street in front of the harlot's house. And she comes out to meet him, kisses him, says, I've you know, been looking for you and so forth. And I, I, I say to myself, why do I need to read this again? I know exactly what happens. I know the whole story by heart. I've read it 500 times. 
Why do I need to read this again? I mean, I want to say to the guy every time, don't go down there this month. You've gone down there every month for 500 months. And it's always turned out bad. It's always bad. Could you, one time, could you not go down there? He goes down there every month. It always turns out bad. But it dawned upon me one day why I need to keep reading that. It's because when that kind of temptation comes to me, I'm never more than 30 days away from a fresh warning of that. So you see the difference between knowing something and being freshly warned about it? I'm not going to say much that's new to hardly anyone in the ministry. But we all need fresh warnings about it. Just because you've ex- you have the experience and the knowledge and the theological education, we still need these warnings. And even more so because with every passing year, our lives get busier and more complex and we have more and more things tempting us not to give the time to it. In a good sense, I know the Bible well, I've preached it most of my life, I've read it, I don't know how many times, so I know it well, how much do I need to spend time in it now? On the negative side, you've got more things pressing on you than ever before. Anybody get fewer emails this year than they did last year? Anybody get fewer text messages this year than last year? Fewer social media posts, fewer things like this. Well, if I come back a year from now and do this, guess what will be true then? I'll ask you, anybody getting fewer emails in 2023 than in 2022? No. Why not? I mean, if the Lord blesses your church and your church grows, that's more people to you know, spend time with. That's more people who contact you. Uh, the more, uh, you know, the bigger your email list gets because you, you know more people you, maybe your kids grow up and they can introduce you to other people. Then they get married and there's that family and others. So, I mean, just, it just grows and grows, right? And you're going to get more emails and more texts every year for the rest of your miserable life. And let's say God blesses your church with fruitfulness. You know, that's, that's more weddings and more funerals. I tell my students, you know, you think you want a, a megachurch, just realize you get a megachurch, you're going, to be, uh, doing, uh, you're going to be doing weddings every weekend for the rest of your life. How does that sound? Going to rehearsal dinner every Friday night and all day to a wedding every Saturday for the rest of your life. How does that sound? And then you're going to have funerals. And as the church grows like that, you're going to have more staff, perhaps, that, that require supervision. You say, well, I'll have more staff by then. They can help me out with some of these things. Yes, but until you get to the point, you know, that you're about to die and the church says, we better get someone to help this man or we're going to kill him. And they get somebody finally after maybe six months it takes, you know, more of this. And then if they do their job right, though, and God blesses that, it's going to go even further. You're going to go through that cycle again. Now, may God give every one of you a mega church. May God send revival to this part of Ohio. And may, you know, that's what we all pray for. Right. We just realize what you pray for. And so the longer you're in the ministry, too, the more experience you have, the more you'll be called on to do additional things you didn't when you were a younger man. Maybe some sort of denominational service or speaking more at conferences or things like that. Again, there's more time. 
New books are going to come out that you'll want to read. Um, the community turns to you more and more often for, for things because you're faithful there and you do a good job. And this accumulates every year of your life. Well, that all requires time. Where does it come from? The temptation is to take it from the things that people don't see. You don't show up for a wedding, people kind of notice that, don't they? You don't show up for your funeral, they kind of notice that. You don't read your Bible today, people don't see that. For a while. For a while. Then almost inevitably the sinkhole syndrome develops. And suddenly... There's this collapse, and people say, how did that happen all of a sudden? Well, as we know from history in Florida and other places, it doesn't happen all of a sudden, right? There's that erosion that's been going all along. You just see it all of a sudden. So the temptation is to cut in the areas people can't see immediately. That's why it's almost inevitable. It's almost inevitable that you have more demands on your time. You have more things to do. They take time you got to get the time from somewhere. Where do you take it? From the things people don't see. And you become ruined. Money, sex, power, pride, cynicism are success. And they keep you from Jesus. Unless you do what this verse says here. Pay close attention to yourself. So that the effects of that don't happen to you. They will. It's inevitable. Or else you make progress in the ministry. Here's a story that relates to that. One of the reasons why we need to pay close attention to ourselves and the inevitability. I was... Uh, in South Africa. This is many years ago, but I've never forgotten it. And a brother is with the Lord now named Martin Holt. Some of you might know that name, leading Baptist there. <clears throat> was my host. And we're driving in front of a very nice looking building on the hill. He said, it's a bi- famous Bible institute. And the principal... Uh, who after his moral failure uh, told Martin, and I, Martin, after he told me the story, I said, put this in an email. I, I need to have so on. This is what I'm reading from. He said, who after his fall came to see me and told me that on the basis of two things he fell. He had become so busy in the Lord's work that he simply neglected to read the scriptures and pray. You know, he had outgrown that. The long-term effects of this neglect, he believes, led to his adultery. When I shared this with uh, another minister from England, who they were driving by the same place, he told him the same story. When I uh, shared this with Bob earlier this year, when he was in South Africa, his words to me were, I almost interrupted you before you told me the two things. Because I wanted to say that I knew exactly what they were. In light of discovering this to be true of every known case of ministerial adultery in the UK. He went on to tell me that a leading theologian in England whose once widely accepted ministry had fallen into disfavor admitted to him 
that he felt that he had outgrown the reading of the scriptures. And the opportunity for that moral failure will happen to you. And I, I tell my students to the, that it will happen to you. The opportunity will come. Satan will make sure that it comes. You may say, oh, that'll never happen to me. I, I'm too old. I'm too ugly. I'm too fat. You know, I'm, I'm too whatever. And I tell them, well, look, Satan will blind a woman for 30 minutes if he has to. And she'll look at you and she'll see George Clooney, you know. Or Legolas, I don't know, whoever. Uh, And the opportunity will happen. It'll happen at the worst possible time when you're under the greatest possible pressure in the church. And you'll say, you know, you, you've been mistreated by the church and the stress is so great and all kinds of self-deceptive things will come into your mind. That will happen to you. I remember I hadn't been in Chicago very long. I came up 10 o'clock one one night to the intersection of Finley and Butterfield. And there's nobody there. It's an intersection with two lanes going straight ahead, turn lane over here, left turn lane. I'm in the middle. Nothing going on, just looking around, nobody, any, any of them. And suddenly I see movement out of my left, and a car pulls up in the left turn lane. A woman rolls down the window and propositions me. Now, my wife was, I had just gone up there. She had to stay back uh, where we moved from. She had to stay there six weeks. So it's only like three weeks in. I'm there all by myself. Even a lot of people in my church didn't even know me by sight yet. Seven million people. Who's going to know? Well, first of all, God will know, and that's enough. Second, my own conscience will know. And third, eventually everybody will know. But it's out of the blue, unexpected. These kind of things happen, and Satan will make sure that it happens to you, that the opportunity comes. He will trade almost anything if he can ruin you forever. It's almost inevitable that something like this is going to come to you, the temptation for this. So it may be sexual adultery, but it may be spiritual adultery like hunting or fishing or golfing or exercising or some hobby or politics or pornography or a thousand other things, anything to lead you astray from seeking Jesus and his kingdom first and foremost. But it's almost inevitable. So many things out there now. It's almost inevitable that something will ruin you. So it's either progress or shipwreck. So first, don't let the ministry keep you from Jesus because it will. And it'll be harder every year for the rest of your life. It's never been harder in my life for me to maintain my devotional life than right now. Though I'm a professor of biblical spirituality. Though it's my job to train ministers in their devotional lives. They'll write books on this. You know why it's harder for me than it's ever been in my life? Because I'm always traveling around the country telling people to have a devotional life. You know, staying up late, getting up early. You know, I've, I've been on 2,200 airplanes doing this. And it is hard. I mean, look what it can do to a 45-year-old man. You know? <laughs> I 
mean, just last week, they took a flight, got in at midnight. They didn't, the hotel had been oversold, so they had went to another place. It was like one o'clock before I got to the hotel. I had to get up at four to speak to people. I was speaking, words are coming out of my mouth at 545. I'm not sure what they were, but I was speaking 545. And you know, so it's like a 23-hour uh, day. It had one two weeks before. I go to the doing the same group in different part of the state this Wednesday. So my flight gets in almost at midnight, and I'll be speaking at 5:45. And that's hard. How do you maintain a devotional life with all that? It's hard. It doesn't happen because you happen to have the time. You got to make it happen. It's never been harder in my life, and my body makes it harder. But this is the call. Pay close attention to yourself. You will be ruined if you don't do this. Now, my second and my other point is this. Don't let the ministry keep you from learning. Don't let the ministry keep you from learning. Look at the second half of that. Persist in this. Well, start over. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, didascalia their doctrine. Persevere in this. Persist in it. For by so doing... You will save both yourself and your hearers. If you're not going to do that, you're going to be ruined. So, first, let's pay close attention to yourself. Now, keep learning doctrine all your life. In light of the busyness we've already talked about, if anything is going to go by the side, it's that. Not being a lifelong learner. It's all I can do just to keep my head above water here. And to prepare to preach. And let's see what time it is. So I'm going to have to, to hurry here. But you were, when you are in seminary early on, you had to learn doctrine. Right? It was forced on you. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. But I warned my students that as soon as they get that diploma from Dr. Muller and walk down the stairs on the other side of the platform, they become a bucket, or they become a well, and the whole world is a bucket. And they will drain you dry if you're not replenishing that well. You go from just more than you can imagine. They go to a class with you know, Tom Schreiner teaching Romans. You know, it's a world-famous biblical scholar and it's unbelievable and they come out of that and go in a chapel at 10 o'clock and we have these t4g quality speakers you know all the time and and when someone like that is not there our fallback guy some guy named al moeller i think and uh when he goes to other seminaries people drive hundreds of miles to hear him and then they come out of there and they go to this world famous theologians class bruce ware and their homework is to read books like grudem and and, and things like this and it's, again, like drinking out of a fire hydrant. And then they get their diploma and they come down the other side and that's not there anymore. But now they're the well and the whole world is a bucket. And if they don't keep replenishing that. And brothers, doctrine is the fuel for the fire in the soul. We, we want the burning heart, right? But burning hearts are not nourished by brainless heads. Doctrine is the fuel for the fire in the soul. Now, yeah, there are some doctrinal speakers and writers that are as dull and dry as inside of a basketball. But I've known a lot of guys who weren't, you know, theologically driven that pretty dull and dry too. 
in obedience to this verse, resolve to keep learning. Going to conferences, like, like a T4G, which isn't a thing anymore, but I mean, you get the idea. You go to them, the podcast, the things that will feed your soul. Every preacher needs to be preached to, and not, not just to be motivated, but to teach you, to learn the things of God, being a lifelong learner. You know what the Bible says? You may not have had a great deal of formal education, but you know what the Bible says who the wise are? Proverbs 10, 14, wise men store up knowledge. Store it up. You may not have many degrees, you may not have much formal education, but you're wise if you store up knowledge. Biblical knowledge, theological knowledge. Jonathan Edwards, in the first biographer of Edwards, Samuel Hopkins, who had lived with Edwards to be trained by him in his home for about six months, first biographer said he was amazed that a man already 20 years in the ministry still had an uncommon thirst for knowledge. He read all the books, especially books of divinity he could come at. So here's a man who's considered by one edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica the greatest mind America has ever produced. He was the smartest man any room he ever walked into. The best educated man of almost any room we ever walked into. He's out on the frontier. He could have coasted for the rest of his life on his previous education, just on the intellectual capital that he had. But he read everything he could put his fingers on. Constantly learning. This is what Paul models for us here. We're going to be stale. Otherwise, well, I, I've got to wrap this up. Um, so, three, three words here in finishing. First, beware the barrenness of busyness. Beware the barrenness of busyness. I mean, we have more time and labor-saving devices than ever, right? I mean, we can be talking on the phone... Uh, you know, while we're at the ATM eating our breakfast. We've never been able to do more stuff faster than ever. We can do research faster. I think sometimes what Edwards might have done, you know, with our research abilities. But we have, by that, become increasingly efficient at leading meaningless lives. We have more time and labor-saving devices than ever before and less time. More suicides, more stress-related diseases than ever before. Something's wrong with this picture. And it will happen to us if we don't do what this verse says. Just because we're busy doesn't mean we're fruitful for the sake of the kingdom. You can go 500 miles at 200 miles an hour and get nowhere. On a NASCAR track. There's a difference between busyness and effectiveness. There's a difference between activity and progress. We want to make progress in the ministry, not just activity. Second, take pains with the pastoral epistles. Take pains with the pastoral epistles. And I take that right here. Uh, verse 15 that I started with. Um, where'd it go? 
Where does it say, take pains with these things? So I can't, I can't find it. Oh, okay. Verse yeah, 15. Practice. Other translations say, take pains. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. What are the things he wrote in the pastoral epistles? Immerse yourself in them. I read one every day and rotate them all. There's 13 chapters and I've done it since the 90s. It says be immersed in these things. If there's a seminary in the Bible, where is it? The pastoral epistles. Immerse yourself in the pastoral epistles. Take pains with them. I mean, have you ever seen things like this in verse 16? Keep a close watch yourself in your teaching. Persist in this. Persevere. You do it all your life. All your life. Persist in it. For by so doing. And now, one of the endlessly fascinating things about this verse to me is it says three times in the same verse to do the same thing. I don't know any other verse in the Bible that says that. Three times, same verse, do the same thing. Number one. Pay close attention to yourself to the teaching. Here's number one. Persist in this. What's this? Paying close attention to yourself in the teaching. For by so doing. Doing what? Paying close attention to yourself to the teaching. Only verse in the Bible, three times the same verse. The only verse in the Bible that says, you do this, you will see people saved. I don't think I've ever heard an evangelism conference that used this verse. (laughs) Our missions conference. But it's the only verse in the Bible that says, do this, you will see people saved. It doesn't say you'll see as many as you want, but you'll see true conversions. And I'd rather have 10 who are truly converted than 100 who say they are and they're not, right? Where do I get that? By so doing, by persevering in watching your life and doctrine, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How do you know you're not going to end up a casualty in the ministry? If you will pay close attention to yourself, your your devotional life, your relationship to Jesus and doctrine, and you do that all your life, you're probably saved. Lost people don't do that. Hypocrites in, in ministry don't do that. But if for the rest of your life you stay pressing forward to knowing Christ and becoming like Jesus, and you're hungry for the truth of God for the rest of your life, you're probably saved. And you will save those who hear you. You'll save those who hear you. So, pay, take pains with the pastoral epistles. And that's it. I'm done. So let me pray. Oh Lord, I pray for these brothers and sisters. You'd help them per, per, pay close attention to themselves, to their lives, to their teaching. For the rest of their lives. Ask in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. The uh, Praying the Bible book, uh, some of you may have gotten uh, free copies. Crossway offered some free copies to churches uh, a few months ago. Um, and uh, some of you may be thinking of studying the book, you know, going on Wednesday nights or whatever. There is a free downloadable PDF study guide for that uh, on my website. So it'll take you through four to six weeks of the study. And uh, then if you want to go longer than that, it'll, it's basically indefinite. You just use a different passage each time uh, with, most importantly, guidelines for helping people pray through a passage during the session, that Wednesday night, you know, that you're doing it. So that's on the website. My website is biblicalspirituality.org. Biblicalspirituality.org. 
which if you've been there recently, it's been a disaster. Uh, it's a 19-year-old website that just exploded recently, and the guy who does it, you know, who was so sacrificial of his time, uh, but had a thousand other things to do, patched up a few pages. When he did it, the whole color scheme changed to where it was horrible. Um, but it was limping along because for the first time in 19 years, I have a new one. And this was in, you know, we were just getting this one limping along while the new one was being worked on. That was released this week. So that's why I'm so excited about it. That was released this week. So my point is, if you went to it recently and said, that's the worst website I've ever seen. Well, you were right, but I just want to let you know... <laughs> It's better now, so don't give up on it. It's still biblicalspirituality.org. If you go to the, you know, the bookstore part of the books and click on the page for Praying the Bible, like you were going to order it, uh, right at the very top, there's a link to a free PDF download. So now that you've got the book, if you ever teach anybody else, you've got notes there. So. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, it was really good to visit your website. Uh, just wanted to do a little uh, reading up on Dr. Whitney, see what kind of big life changes, if anything, had happened um, in his life. And I, I was on your Facebook page as well, uh, and it was really encouraging to see uh, some photos recently of your students at mm. Southern, uh, just in various places around campus, praying. Yeah, when that. I teach on praying the Bible, I always give them about 25 minutes to actually do it, mm-hmm. and then we come back and talk about it. Yes. Uh, I remember doing that exercise and, and at first being daunted, but, but in time encouraged and then just being able to share that uh, with some other guys who were learning. Yeah, if you do it in your church, I wouldn't make it that long. I mean, when I do this in a local church, usually it's a Friday night for a couple of hours. I'll give people seven minutes to pray. And often they do it right where they're seated rather than going outside like my students. But um, also I'm constrained by the you know, two hours on a Friday night. I have more time in the classroom, but uh, giving them a chance to do it is the most important thing. Uh, that's where the life change happens. They come back and they never pray the same way again. Because if you don't give them a chance to do it, you ought to do this, here it is. You know, they walk out going, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a real good idea. I'll have to try that, Brother Darren, someday. Someday I'll do that. And they never do. Yeah. That's right. Practice. Well, Dr. Wade, we're really thankful again for your, your presence here. We had a few questions, um, and so I'm just going to start with this one. Uh, it, it really rose to the top of the pile just in terms of the talk that you just shared. Did you almost exit the ministry, and why, if you want to elaborate? Well, I told you about one time, the, you know, a woman propositioned me there. Um, and there have been those times, I mean, you can tell, uh, and I'm speaking as a guy here, but I mean, I, I think whether you're a man or a woman, there are times just somebody seems to be a little too interested or eager to talk to you, you know, and it's flattering, but you realize uh, I could either allow this to, I can encourage this or not encourage this. Um, when I was pastoring and around many of the same people a lot, you know, my wife would be there. She could often spot that quicker than I could. In fact, I remember several, like I happened a lot, you know, a couple of times maybe when she would say, watch out. I'm suspicious of, you know, what's going on. 
which alerted me to it. And I thought, yeah, th this is a little friendlier maybe than it ought to be in terms of just interest and smile and, you know, all this. Um, pornography is probably the gr much greater threat for most, but I think, um, and I, I've thought about quitting before just because things were hard. My first pastorate, uh, two week, within two weeks I would have been fired if I hadn't been called to the church in Chicago. Um, but this little country church, I was the 17th pastor in 21 years, this little church, which tells you a lot, right? Now, 20, it tells me a million times more than when I was 25 and went there. Um, you know, it was always the pastor's fault. You know, they said, well, I won't let that happen to me. I won't, you know. And uh, over the years, I've started to realize, you know, all right, let, let's say that they actually did call 17 losers in a row. I mean, it's unlikely, but let's just say that they did. The best way you can look at that is they're terrible at calling pastors, right? They just cannot discern a good man from a bad one for their lives. It's just about the best way to look at it. So anyway, it, it, you know, it's largely, I think, a church of unconverted people in retrospect. And, um, so I, would, I was two weeks from being fired, which we were there 15 months, which is almost a record. Uh, we went through five hospitalizations and three surgeries between my wife and I because of the stress. Both of us were told you'll never be parents. So, I mean, it was very costly, and I thought seriously about, you know, leaving. My dad gave me some very wise advice, which I gave to someone else one time, and they violated, and it was seven years before things worked out for them. He said, you know, son, don't leave without having another, until you have another place to go. Because it's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to go from, I used to be in the ministry, to being a pastor again than going from one pastorate to another. So hang in there, you know, until something else worked out, and it did. But, yeah, I often thought about Friday. That was my first church, you know, and I thought, this is the way it's going to be. Now, eventually, the upside of the story, he already, he already told you the background about grandchild and so forth. God gave us a baby in bifocals the same year. So I was eight weeks, six weeks from being 40 when God gave us a daughter, and now she's given us our fourth grandchild coming up, so. Any counsel, any counsel for not just going through the motions when reading and praying? Yeah. Uh, this is a conference I spent all Saturday morning on. It's the longest subject I spent on my, on, in class with my students, so I could talk about this for a lot, and i got to not do that. <clears throat> the two most important personal spiritual disciplines are the intake of the Word and prayer. I mentioned those tonight. I think there's an almost universal problem with both of them. And this is true for ministers as well as lay people. With the Bible, they take their Bible, say, I'm going to read it every day. I love the Word of God. They read a chapter, read three chapters, ten chapters. Most days, as soon as they close their Bible, if pressed, you'd have to admit, what? Don't remember. Don't remember a thing I've read. So I guess it's just me. I guess I'm just a second-rate Christian. Never had a good memory anyway. Never had a high IQ. Never had a good education. Well, all those things may be true, but that's not why you don't remember what you read in the Bible. I have some 25-year-old geniuses in my classes at the seminary who have a high IQ, good education, uh, you know, all these things. And they have the same problem. 
the problem is we merely read the Bible. And the key to remembering it is meditation. We don't meditate. Or to paraphrase uh, the words of the warden in Cool Hand Luke, what we've got here is a failure to meditate. We simply don't. It's not that we can't. We don't. Now, when I say that, I can see people going, you don't get it. You know, I've got, I'm working two jobs. I've got three kids and all these sorts of things. And I love the Bible. I read the Bible every day. I do the best I can. But God is my witness. Ten minutes is the best I can do most days. You don't get it. No, I've pastored a long time. And, and I have the problem myself. I do get it. You only got ten minutes some days. I get that. But if you only have ten minutes, don't read for ten minutes. Read for five minutes and meditate for five minutes. It's far better to read less if necessary. I'm not advocating that. Read less if necessary and remember something than to read more and remember nothing, right? So I think meditation is the greatest single devotional need of most Christians. If it were within my power to change the devotional life of every Christian on the planet, it would be at that point. It would be meditation on Scripture. We're to meditate how often, according to Joshua 1.8, Psalm 1.2, day and night. So you at least be able to remember it when you close your Bible, right? If you, don't, if you can't remember the verse when you close your Bible, you're not going to meditate day and night. And that's a simple test for you to know, well, how did I know if I sufficiently meditated? Can you remember it later? In the drive-thru at lunch, when you're going to bed at night, you say, what was that verse? That's a simple test. Did you adequately meditate? So I could talk forever about that point my spiritual disciplines book where I've got 17 different methods of meditation. So that's half my answer. I see you put, put the microphone up to shut me up. Uh, so the other is prayer. The intake of the word and prayer with both those on the universal problem, right? So with the intake of the word, we don't remember what we read. Simple, permanent, biblical solution. Meditate on scripture. Don't simply read. Reading is the exposure to scripture. That's the starting place. Meditation is the absorption of scripture. It takes you two seconds to read verse 1, two seconds to read verse 2, two seconds to read verse 3. You can read a thousand verses and not remember a one, because what do you ever remember you look at for two seconds? It doesn't matter. We don't remember anything we look at for two seconds, right? So you pick out one of those verses after you read and you meditate on that verse. The other most important discipline is prayer. There's an almost universal problem. When people do pray, they tend to say the same old things about the same old things. And that's boring. And when prayer is boring, we tend not to pray. Words without variety tend to become words without meaning. Simple, permanent, biblical solution. When you pray, pray the Bible. So the solution is in your hands there. Simple, just in other words, as you go to your Bible... And as you are going through a passage, particularly one of the Psalms, talk to God about what comes to mind. If nothing comes to mind, go to the next verse. If you don't understand it, go to the next verse. Talk to God about what you see there. Jesus prayed two Psalms on the cross. Realize the words he, he said on earth where he's praying a Psalm. George Mueller, considered by many the greatest man of prayer and faith since the times of the New Testament. I have my students read his biography. He said that for 10 years... He's already famous. He's not a nobody. He's the great man of prayer and faith. Praise God provides for the orphans. For 10 years after 
getting uh, breakfast, after getting dressed, he would pray until breakfast. And he said it sometimes took him half an hour to an hour before he got into the spirit of prayer. In other words, before he felt like praying. But sometimes he said his, his mind would wander like crazy and, and he, would, he would try and he would try and his mind would run. He would try, try, try. Finally, he would begin to feel like praying. And only then he said, did I begin to pray? Until I made one slight alteration in my prayer life, he said. That's when he started praying the Bible. And he said, I never suffered that way anymore. So you go through it. Talk to God about what you see there. You'll never again say the same old things. You'll pray about the same old things. Your family, your future, your finances, your church, and so forth. That's your life. Those will come oozing out of any verse. But if you pray about your family from the 23rd Psalm, Lord, shepherd my family, that's going to be different than if you pray about your family and you're praying through Psalm 139, right? Lord, may they sense your presence today. It's the same prayer, right? But it's a different prayer because you pray it through a different passage. And you don't need any notes. You don't have to remember any formula or acrostic. You just talk to God about what you see in the text. Anybody can do that. A child can do that. The one who knows the Bible best in your church can do that. The one who knows the Bible least, the most spiritually mature, least mature. And everything I speak about is in that book. I mean, when I speak on it, all my notes are right there. You've got them all. Okay, I'll try to be shorter. You should write that up in a book. Uh, could you, this is my personal follow-up to the first of those two most important disciplines. Meditation uh, for many in, in North American Christianity just kind of smacks of the East. Mm-hmm. Um, chase for us, just, just quickly, what is different about meditation biblically yeah. than Eastern types yeah. of meditation? Well, you know, it's a false form of meditation when it says empty your mind. Biblical meditation, we fill our minds with the word of God, with things of God. Uh, with Eastern meditation and other forms, it's you're, you're to be sort of mentally passive. Don't think, you know. Don't think, don't think. Am I thinking? Yeah, I'm thinking about whether I'm thinking or not. You can't not think. But don't listen to any form that says that. Bible says we are to intentionally be thinking of something. He meditates on his word day and night. He'll be like a tree. So we're to meditate on the word of God and what it, what it is teaching. Um, and there's, well, those are the main differences. The content as well as the method. So, um, Eastern meditation tends to be more self-centered. You're looking within, within, deeper within, deeper within. Whereas we're meditating on God, the Word of God, the things of God uh, when it comes to biblical meditation. So let's remember, this is our Word. We're commanded to do this. The Word is in the Bible. And you usually have two problems. One is people don't know the Word is in the Bible. And so when you talk meditation in the church, it's like, whoa, what are you doing? Or they do know it's in the Bible. But the definition they put on it is not the biblical definition. So I never talk about meditation without starting right where you started. Let's talk about what meditation is not. Because it's huge. I mean, the number one downloaded podcast in the world, three years in a row, 
talks about meditation almost every episode. The, the host meditates, transcendental meditation talks about it, and it seems nearly everybody he talks about it. I mean, it's gotten big in the NFL, in the military, um, some in the NBA. I mean, it, it, a lot of business books involve all this. So your people have been exposed to it, but it is not what the Bible teaches. Yet it's essential to absorbing the Bible. And, and it's the reason why so many people say, I read the Bible and pray every day. Frankly, I don't get anything out of it. I think it's a lack of meditation. It, as I said earlier, med, reading is the, the exposure to Scripture. That's the starting place. But meditation is the absorption. It's through the absorption of Scripture that we experience spiritual reality. We are supernaturalists, right? And this isn't an issue of whether you're a continuationist or cessationist. We do believe in the Holy Spirit. And we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that is a part of us. And as a Puritan said, we believe in a felt Christ. We preach a felt Christ. And we start, you know, the foundation of Scripture, but we do believe in the Holy Spirit. And so it's, we experience God. We taste and see that the Lord is good through meditation. And we just don't do that. So that's why I think so many of our people admit, I, I can't remember the last time I had any sort of experience with God. Um, through my devotional life. But you've all had this experience and some people will have it tomorrow in your church. They'll get up in the morning, they'll read a Bible passage, their hearts will be as cold as ice, they'll come to church, you'll preach on that passage and their hearts will be set on fire. What's the difference? Same person, same passage, same morning. In one case, all they did was read it and close it. In the other, you helped them meditate on it. You held them by the fire of the word for 30, 45, 60 minutes. And the word did its work. So that's why people, they, they experience the power of the word of God through meditation. And they, we just don't do it. We read it, close it, we're done. Another question, uh, and Joe, I don't have my phone before I see it. One more, I've got time for one more. Uh, outside the Bible, Dr. Whitney, what one book has had the most impact on you? Oh, man. Uh, no, it was, I'm usually, it's more like, you know, top five books or something like that, all of which are biographies. Um, uh, George Mueller's biography. And I read the one by, uh, uh, when I was a seminary, the only one that was really available was, who is it? Some of you older guys. Uh, George Mueller, Bristol by A.T. Pearson. A.T. Pearson. Who was the interim pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle when Spurgeon died? And this will shock you. He wasn't a Baptist. Um, as, as Baptistic Spurgeon was. But the one I had my students read was written in the 80s. So it has more information available, a more readable style by Roger Steer. It's like cattle, Roger Steer. George Mueller delighted in God. That, Arnold Dallimore's Spurgeon, Arnold Dallimore's Two Volumes on Whitfield. Um, Ian Murray's Edwards, did I say the other Ian Murray's Lloyd Jones, those five. Um, and beyond that, there's a book called The Mind Map Book. It's not a Christian book, but it's not an anti Christian book. It's like your lawnmower manual. You know, it's not Christian, it's not anti Christian. Um, called The Mind Map Book, which is uh, I never preach or write without doing that thing of mind mapping. 
Um, and in the last few years, uh, I mean, outside of Christian books, especially Deep Work by Cal Newport, C-A-L as in Calvin, Cal Newport. I've read it six times. <clears throat> How many books I've read six times? And the one before it called So Good They Can't Ignore You. I wish I'd read them in order. His books were kind of written in a sequence that just, he'll write a book, it raises questions, oh, that's the next book. You know? And then it comes the answers in the next book. So uh, I think I got so interested in that because to me meditation is the deep work of the Christian life. So that's how I got into, uh, into some of his stuff. Uh, again, he's not a believer, but he's not uh, against Christianity. In fact, his grandfather, whom he very much admires, was the provost at Southwestern when I was there. So he has a religious sort of background. They, his wife, they have a Shabbat meal on Friday nights. So anyway, that's had a great impact on me recently.